Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The nature of covering a conference is you're sitting there and someone drops by for an interview, maybe unexpected, (laughs) the timing can shift. And we've got a fantastic guest coming up now with Bloomberg's Francine Lacqua over in Glasgow, Scotland. Hey, Francine. Hi, John. Yeah, we're delighted to be joined by Mark Carney uh, here, of course, looking at finance, looking at COP26 in Glasgow. He's also former Bank of England governor. Mark, as always, thank you so much for making us smart on what finance can do, because COP... Uh, I mean, COP26 starts today. The G20 was a little bit of a doldrum because we didn't get some of the pledges that a lot of people were hoping for. What does it mean for your expectations for COP26? Well, I think a couple of things. I'm going to quote the Secretary General's hopes unfulfilled but not yet buried. Uh, The one and a half degrees anchor in the the G20 communique is significant. Uh, Some progress, but we've got a lot of work to do. And the big question for this week, at least for this Wednesday, is what can finance, and more specifically the private financial sector, what can it do? do uh, to help solve this problem. So it's going to really have to step up. And there's been a lot of institutions, a lot of people around the world who've been working in order to do that. Yeah, we don't even have a price on carbon yet. When will we get that? Well, we don't have a price on carbon, but what I, I think our message on Wednesday uh, to world leaders, uh, to policymakers, to business people around the world is finance is going to be there. And finance is going to be there in two respects. One, we're, we've, we've retooled the financial system. We've changed the plumbing, if you will, the financial system, a bunch of very worthy reforms that actually, to be honest, only the audience of Bloomberg would fully understand and appreciate, and we can go through them for the next hour. Um, but, you know, think mandatory disclosure, yeah. think stress testing, all that. So part of it is retooling, but then it's also about financial institutions stepping up and say, saying that they are going to finance this transition, this enormous $100 trillion transition that needs to happen over the next three decades. They're going to finance it, and they're going to mark their own homework. They're going to right. show up year in, year out, say what their emissions are of their clients, um, have specific strategies uh, for reducing carbon, fair share of 50% down by 2030. That's what the Glasgow Financial Alliance is all about. Why not stop actually putting money into fossil fuel full stop instead of talking about the transition? Well, you've got, I mean, we're living through uh, problems with the transition right now in terms of we have both far, far too many fossil fuels in the world. We're going to have enormous stranded assets, half yeah. of gas, three quarters of coal, etc. Maybe up as much as half of oil reserves, proven reserves mm-hmm. need to stay in the ground if we're going to get to where we are. But we also have local short-term shortages of some of those exact materials. We're here in the UK, there's a shortage of the storage of gas. So there needs to be some, only some, limited uh, financing for a transition, but only for a transition, which is why you need things like GFANS that are relentlessly, ruthlessly, absolutely focused on that transition to net zero. And not just any transition, a one and a half degree transition, which, sorry if I may, which is what G20 leaders signed off on yesterday. The the G20 leaders did and stop, for example, coal from being used domestically. Yeah. And, and so we're doing progress, but we're going at it slowly. Well, we're doing progress. We need to accelerate it. Uh, we need to recognize there's differences, and as, as there obviously are, between advanced economies, developing economies. Uh, some of those, there's a, there's a different timeline for fully ending coal. We want to stop coal, not just new coal, but stop use of coal by 2030 in the advanced economies. That's what powering past coal, which is a big element of, yeah. of COP26, is about. But also by the end of the next decade in the emerging developing world. 
And if I may, again, to bring it back to finance, um, to give them the confidence to do that, they need to see literally a wall of money that's available for their transition. So when they're building up alternative energy, uh, that the money is going to be there. Who could do better in finance? Is it the asset managers or the big banks? Well, what, what we're going to reveal on Wednesday is who's doing the best. Um, yeah. And so from sneak asset peak. managers, uh, sneak peek, well, look, the, the problem is it's a $100 trillion problem. And so the question is who's stepping up for the solution? The members of GFANS, so those who are in Net Zero Banking Alliance, Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance, the asset owners, the big pension funds, stepping up with these commitments. And then we need to channel them to where they're needed the most. How much stress is there at the moment amongst the asset managers that actually some of the ESG-labeled products, then if you yeah. probe, are, are not green Well, uh, Well, look, there is some stress, and it's great that there is that. It's not great that it happens, but it's great that there's, there's that pressure. scrutiny, yeah. and there's that skepticism or healthy skepticism about ESG labels or sustainable labels. And that, again, is one of the reasons we're having this ruthless, relentless focus on net zero, because in the end, look, we can't stabilize the climate unless we get to net zero. And it's a simple, these are hard numbers. Your emissions right. are either A or B. They're going up or down. And if they're going down, are they going down consistent with the science? We anchor it in the science, the same science the UN and others use for the one and a half degree objectives. compulsory? Should we not have regulators yeah. coming in and saying, look, this is a new definition. You yeah. stick by it and we're going to so, measure it. So I, I think it's a great question. So let's look at what happened with TCFD, climate disclosure. Yeah. Six years ago, you and I were in Paris. We talked uh, about this, we talked of other things. Now that's moving to become mandatory, compulsory after after that period of time. What we're talking about in terms of net zero disclosure, uh, moving that to compulsory, absolutely. I think we have a couple of weir- year window where best practices develop by the private sector on what exact information is used. Stakeholders make those judgments. And then, yes, I think uh, those uh, jurisdictions, major jurisdictions, should make this compulsory. I mean, economically, we're at the crossroads because of the energy crisis, because of inflationary pressures. Does it worry you that actually it puts the transition backwards a little bit? Well, I mean, if I were a policymaker, I'm not one uh, at at the moment, but if I were a policymaker, I'm always a policymaker at heart, and I care about the economy. Um, Look, I, I think one of the opportunities to turn the easy bit of the recovery has been reopening our economies. Yes, there have been some frictions, but we've gotten that boost of growth with reopening. Now we need to sustain an expansion. We're only going to do that with investment, business investment. Business balance sheets are in pretty good shape. If you have directions such as moving towards a net zero economy, we have huge, huge investment. That 100 trillion figure I mentioned has huge positive GDP multipliers as it comes forward. So that's the opportunity to unleash, to turn recovery into an expansion. But So if we get a temper tantrum, I don't know whether we do a taper tantrum. Temper taper tantrum. (laughs) Then what does that mean for ESG um, product appetite? Uh, well, again, uh, what I'm looking for, what, you know, so when you look for where to be in uh, financial markets, given a situation which, you know, yes, there is an adjustment going on in interest rates. Uh, I'd rather have this adjustment going yeah. on in interest rates rather than slipping back into a liquidity trap, which is where we were. We were on the cusp of a liquidity trap for many years after the financial crisis. So now as global interest rates are moving up, Ideally, what's happening is real interest rates are moving yep. up because we're getting the kind of investment and kind of returns that we need. That's sustained recovery. You want me to stop? You're having a we tantrum. We have to stop. I'm having a, a time tantrum, but we'll get you back on, Mark Carney. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. This is Bloomberg. I have to say, sitting in this seat has always been an honor for me to cover this industry. Working in this industry 
is really, really difficult. And we're always very happy when someone we like gets a new seat. Troy Gajewski has got a new seat, the Chief Market Strategist at FS Investments. Troy, congratulations. Before we start the conversation, just talk to me about the new seat you've got. What's going to change for you? Yeah, so I'm incredibly excited to join FS Investments as their chief market strategist. So, you know, it's a firm that I've known since 2014 when I had the pleasure of meeting the founder, Michael Foreman. You know, one of the things that attracted me to them was not only investment excellence, but the fact that they took that investment excellence and found pretty unique ways to package uh, sophisticated strategies so that retail investors could actually access them. Uh, as you remember in our industry, a lot of the early stage, uh, more sophisticated alternatives were really exclusively for sovereign wealth funds or pensions. So getting to work with a firm whose DNA is tied to finding ways for retail investors to participate, very, very exciting. Um, and you know, right now, as you guys know, one of the biggest challenges for all investors is yep. what to do with their fixed income allocation. And they have a variety of really exciting solutions there. I will never underestimate anyone's ability in this industry, Troy, to deliver a marketing pitch just like that on a dime, just ready to go. <laughs> Doing what I can, John. Doing what I can. Hey, Troy, let's start this interview properly. The Federal Reserve, big, big buildup in the front end of the curve. How much pushback this week? Well, I don't think there'll be a lot of pushback from the Fed. I mean, I think they're going to talk more broadly about the fact that they're going to be patient. But, you know, at the end of the day, and Lisa was bringing this up before, markets are getting more and more comfortable with the probability of them hiking at least twice next year. And that's certainly good news from a standpoint of market stability. But other than that, I mean, remember, what will stop this rally? And I disagree with Mike Wilson, with all due respect, <laughs> is probably going to go into January at least is when liquidity finally starts to wane meaningfully. We've seen a meaningful drop over the past five months, but M2 is still growing faster than nominal GDP. And given the seasonality right now, we do expect uh, the green light to stay go. But as we get into next year, that light's starting to flash yellow, right? Because you know, as the Fed tapers, you're going to have slower M2 growth. As markets start to focus more and more on the potential hikes, you'll see that flat line. And so that's when you start to get into a period where you could have multiple corrections. There's another way of saying this, another way of tracking this, and that perhaps is the real yield. And I was looking at a Lori Calvacino note of RBC Capital, and she was saying, really what's behind the rally is the fact that yields have remained so negative on a real basis in the 10-year space, in the five-year space, et cetera, meaning basically inflation expectations are rising much faster than nominal yields. At what point do you expect that to reverse, if at all? In other words, is this unsustainable where we are right now? Well, yeah, so go back to the last cycle, right? Remember, it, we only got to real yields in the front end towards the end of the Powell hiking regime, and markets didn't take that too well, right? So as we look into next year, remember, there's a couple of accidents that could happen. One is the Fed is forced to tighten faster. Even if they should, they probably won't. The other is that the bond market starts to actually price in meaningfully higher uh, inflation like we're living in right now. And as you get that big back end of the curve move, you start to price in closer to flat. D did you hear me, John? I just said closer to flat closer real to yields. Flat. <laughs> and, and, and that leads to some type of dislocation. Uh, but the bottom line is at, at multiples at these levels, you know, when you think about where yields are, are rising, uh, you think about liquidity is going to slow down. You know, now is really one of those times where you want to start to diversify into alternatives. Troy, I often say that it's a strategist's job to read bedtime stories to people nervous about the market and to help them sleep at night and to stay invested. Is that job easier or harder right now? 
Yeah, you know, I think right now it's easier, right? Because it's a risk-on environment for markets, right? And there's a lot more FOMO now than there was, say, you know, during the Eurozone crisis or 15, 16. So I think the challenge for strategists now is to get people to focus on other assets where they can uh, potentially not have as much upside as equities in the short term, but have a much less downside, you know, particularly in things like senior secured commercial real estate, floating rate debt, uh, other more um, uh, hybrid strategies and uh, corporate fixed income, things that can hit that mid to high single digit return with far less downside when the inevitable occurs next year and multiple corrections. I'm always listening, Troy. You know that. Always listening. That's good. That's good. I'm always <laughs> listening to you too, John. <laughs> good to hear from you, buddy. Troy Gajewski of FS Investments on this market. Joining us on this market, Lisa Hornby, head of U.S. multi-sector fixed income at Schroders. Lisa, we heard from Tony Dwyer in the past week, and he talked about credit holding up. So long as credit holds up, equities will be okay. Have you been surprised by how well insulated credit has been despite everything going on around us? Yeah, actually, I have been a little bit. You know, I, you would think that some of this rates volatility would have filtered into um, equity and credit and risk markets more broadly. But so far, it's it's been pretty resilient. You know, I guess for us, the thing that we're looking at the most closely is, at least for U.S. fixed income markets, the uh, the impact on foreign and overseas demand. I mean, that's something that we've become very reliant on over the past years. Uh, there's been a tremendous amount of, of yield buying just by European, Japanese, Asian-based investors. Um, and to the extent we start to see front-end yields move higher, which impacts the cost of their hedging, their currencies, um, that could eventually have some impact on uh, their demand for U.S. credit product. So far, we're not seeing much of a change in that front. Um, and, and, and so we've seen really credit spreads be quite resilient. Um, you know, our expectation is that we will get a little bit more volatility in the coming months, uh, particularly as we get some of these central bank moves um, out of the way and we see, um, you know, how markets can actually stand on their own without the huge liquidity uh, that we've had provided to us over the last yeah. 18 months or so. Lisa, I'm going to live up to my reputation as Dr. Gloom because I keep thinking about what happens when the Fed starts hiking. What happens when we get to the end of this cycle? What does the end of this credit cycle look like? I think the end of this credit cycle probably looks like the end of most credit cycles, right? You start to see leverage increase. Um, you, you know, you start to see some of the same uh, phenomenon we, we've seen in the past. Um, for us, we tend to use spreads as our guide, right? When spreads get um, almost insanely tight, and I could I, I could almost say we're we're close to that point. Well, now. but forgive You're me, Lisa. I'm sorry for breaking in here, but it's not just what do you look for, but what's the nature of defaults at a time when the Federal Reserve has gotten a reputation of stepping in? Well, that's a good question. I guess your question is, are, is the Fed allowing a, a credit cycle to exist anymore? <laughs> um, and I don't know, you know, frankly, we don't know the answer to that. I think you, I think markets are still going to behave like it will exist. But what you saw this past crisis and probably what's to come in the future is that those bounces low to the to the absolute, you know, low in credit spreads to the, the peak and then back become shorter in nature because the markets start to discount a very quick and rapid central bank response. Yeah, well, Lisa, um, so I was I was speaking with Steen Jacobson over at Centr uh, Saxo Bank earlier today, and he he basically said that. He said central banks are so far behind the curve on inflation that they are going to have to act more quickly. The cycle, hiking cycle, is going to be shorter, and it actually might result in them 
having to loosen policy again earlier because of a kind of overreaction. What's your reaction to that? I mean, I, look, I think mar- central banks are always behind markets. You're seeing that today, right? It's the central banks that are catching up to what the market has done in terms of pricing, at least in the U.S. Um, so I, th- I think that's probably spot on. Central banks are going to respond. They're, they're trying to respond on a number of fronts. I mean, Powell has a very difficult message to walk ahead of himself this week, right? He can't be too benign on inflation. Otherwise, you're going to have the bond mar- market vigilante sort of uh, pushing that narrative. At the same time, um, the market has undergone quite a significant front end repricing. You cannot, you, know, you don't want to see a situation where the, the market starts to kind of go crazy on that front and, if, and Powell endorses it. So I think all of these central bankers are kind of in for a difficult, uh, a difficult messaging over the next couple of years, really, as this inflation narrative is, in our view, not quite as transitory as people have made it out to be. And that's probably a more structural trend rather than a, a very short term one. Lisa, just quickly, there must be some weakness somewhere that you're just nibbling at, thinking about buying. I'm looking at Italian tens right now, up 10, 11 basis points over in Italy <laughs> to about 127. This is a world where it's a struggle to get yield, a world where central banks will have some limitations on how far they can push the policy rate. Does 127 in Italy get it done? Do you sit out and wait for more? What is it, Lisa? We're not quite there yet on Italy. I know you love to ask me about that one. Um, but I will say that emerging markets are starting to open up as an opportunity for us. I mean, we have seen pretty dramatic underperformance in some of the EM names. Um, and there, are, in our view, there are some opportunities there. We'd like to get a little bit of stability in the dollar um, to give us a bit more confidence in, in taking some of that trade. But certainly there are emerging market issuers that have um, underperformed. And those that are, are geared to the U.S. economic recovery, we're a bit more favorable on those. Um, we are starting to take advantage of some of the opportunities there. Interesting. Come on when you're buying a little bit more and we can talk more about it. Lisa, thank you. <laughs> Lisa Hornby of Schroders takes us immediately to the China conversation. Yes. It's all about one thing this week for the Federal Reserve. Give us your rate guidance. Joining us now is Andrew Hollenhorst, Chief U.S. Economist at City Global Markets. Now, Mr. Hollenhorst, you had some forecast out at the start of this year for rate hikes from the Fed to start next year in December. As you've indicated, people thought you were hawkish. Are they now accusing you of being a dove? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's definitely been the evolution. When we came into the year with that forecast, people actually asked us, did you put the wrong year behind December? Should it be (laughs) December 2023? Should it be December 2024? But no, it was 2022. And we're, we're still in December 2022, even as we see the market is starting to move ahead of us here. So this is the ultimate win for a strategist, right? This means that you are early and potentially late, but probably dead on. What gave you conviction before and what gives you conviction now that they're not going to hike more than just once next year? You know, I don't know if conviction is really the word that I can use, but the single thing that we were looking at was the rapid recovery in demand and what that would mean for inflation. And really, it's the inflation story that matters. And that's why I say it's hard to say conviction because Inflation has been a difficult variable for any macroeconomist to get right, for any policymaker to get right. But when we came into the year looking at the numbers, it looked like that strong demand was going to be there. That could drive some stronger inflation. I think that's what we're seeing coming through in the data now. And when we see the market moving these rate hikes earlier, when we see some calls that are thinking about the Fed hiking earlier, I think it's really about that inflation story, what we're seeing in shelter prices, what we're seeing in services. We know it's there in goods. The question is, does it broaden now? 
Does it become more persistent? Does it stay with us? And does that cause the Fed to hike? Let's look past Wednesday to Friday to the payrolls report that we're going to get. If we get a low surprise, a negative surprise, downside surprise, what does that mean in terms of tightness for this labor market? It's so interesting because we were so focused on the headline jobs number because the Fed told us substantial further progress in the labor market. That's what we needed to see to get to the taper. Well, we're to the taper now. We think that at the FOMC meeting this week, we'll have an announcement of the tapering of $120 billion a month of asset purchases. So the focus is no longer so much on that headline jobs number. Now the focus is, is there a shortage of workers in the labor market? So you can have a weak reading in a jobs report because there's no demand for jobs. If we get a weak reading, I think it's going to be driven by the fact that there's not the supply of workers there behind it. So we're really looking at data on wages. We're looking at data on participation. It's that shortage story that matters more than the particular headline jobs number. Okay, so let's focus in on participation, which has stayed stubbornly low around that 61% level. Is that structural now? It looks like at least a piece of it is structural. I think where we can most clearly say there's probably a structural element is with those 55 and over. Somewhere between 500,000 and a million workers, we think, have dropped out of the labor force, which are really early retirements, right? This was you had excess savings during the pandemic period, maybe lost some attachment to a job. And now that retirement, which was five years, 10 years off, it came early. And so those workers are probably permanently out. What we're watching on a month to month basis is the prime age workers. Are you seeing those prime age workers coming back in or staying out? And I think that's where the surprise has been, especially relative to policymaker expectations. You know, there was a view at the Fed that enhanced unemployment benefits were going to expire, schools were going to reopen, and you'd have really a surge of workers coming back into the labor force. And I think it's clear now in the data that we're not seeing that surge of workers. The question now is, is there going to be a trickle of workers that's slowly coming in and relieving some of the worker shortage that we're seeing? Or is this really structural? People people have just re-examined their lives, made a different life plan, and working for some people is not part of that now. Well, Andrew, you mentioned excess savings during the course of the pandemic, and that brings me back to the note out of Mike Wilson and the team at Morgan Stanley this morning. His whole thesis is that the bull run in equities can't last for much longer. But what's interesting is he points to a, de- a payback in demand early next year in that a lot of that excess savings is now back to pre-pandemic levels. Inflation is starting to bite for some of those lower end consumers, and you're going to see a year over year decline in personal disposable income. At what point are you worried about the consumer's propensity? propensity and willingness to spend and to be tolerant of the higher prices that companies are trying to pass through? Yeah, great question. And I I think I get worried about it when I think about late 2022. If I look at early 2022, then the story that you mentioned, the pent up demand supply that just hasn't satisfied that demand. If you look at autos, for instance, running 12 million, 13 million annualized auto sales a month, that number should be 16 or 17 million. Those people still want to buy cars. And as soon as that production ramps up, we're going to see those auto sales. So it's hard to get too negative on the first half of 2022. When you look at the second half of 2022, that's when you think about, have we worked through some of those savings that have been pent up, that are ready to come out and become demand? Are we seeing higher prices that are now outstripping the rises that we're seeing in wages. So wages are accelerating, but prices, of course, are also rising rapidly. And that means real incomes are actually declining. Um, so that's, you know, it's part of the demand story. It's also part of the inflation story. Does that become a little bit of a spiral where we see prices and wages rising together? Or does this actually become something that's negative for demand where prices are moving 
too much ahead of wages. And this really goes to the idea that people in the market tend to be impatient, which is probably why I enjoy covering them, uh, because I relate deeply. But this idea that once we get a sense of when the Fed will hike, we look to what's next, how many more times, what's the pace of rate hikes going to look like, what is the end of the cycle going to look like, and you take it on from there. Andrew Hollenhorst, chief U.S. economist of Citigroup, what is your view here about the path of this rate hiking cycle? The idea that if the Fed hikes sooner, they cannot go for that long and it will be a shorter cycle? I think in terms of where they get to, in terms of a terminal rate, right now it looks like maybe that terminal rate is not going to be that high. If you look at the last hiking cycle, you only really got real rates up to about 100 basis points, which means that nominal rates really shouldn't be going much past 2 to 3%. And then you think about where rates came back down to, real rates ended up around zero basis points, which would be nominal rates around 2%. So the destination, I think, is not too high, or at least will be viewed as not too high. On the other hand, remember, we're in a flexible average inflation targeting regime. What does that mean? It means that you allow inflation to overshoot before you start raising rates. It means that when you start raising rates, you should have a lot of confidence about proceeding with rate hikes. So even though the destination is not too far away, I think the Fed will be relatively deliberate about raising rates. One rate hike every quarter, so about four rate hikes a year, maybe only getting up to around 2% nominal rates. But still, I, I wouldn't expect that this is kind of, you know, one or two rate hikes and you're done. All right. So that's all on the monetary policy side, Andrew. On the fiscal policy side, maybe we could actually see some action down on Capitol Hill this week as it relates to the infrastructure package and the social spending package. But both of those are a lot smaller in size and scope than originally intended. Net net, when you look at a package that is smaller, but also maybe, you know, the revenue, the pay for kind of side that is also more moderate than expected. How does that inform your thesis for what the economy is going to look like over the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I think it's a really difficult question over five or 10 years. And remember that some of the elements of this fiscal package, even if they're initially legislated for one or two years, take the enhanced child tax credit as an example, for instance, if that becomes popular, then it may stay part of legislation even beyond the period when it's meant to expire according to this particular fiscal package. So when we actually project these things out, we don't just take current law as what will happen. We actually make assumptions about things like a child tax credit being continued. So I think what you're likely to see here is spending that exceeds revenue. There's still a lot of questions about the revenue side. In any case, it will be spending that's more front-loaded relative to revenue. So we'll have things like a corporate tax, maybe a 15% minimum corporate tax. That's going to extend out for 10 years, whereas the spending enhanced child tax credit, for instance, that's going to be front-loaded in the first couple years. So I think we're looking at larger deficits. I think we're looking at net positive fiscal impulse, but relative to a hugely positive fiscal impulse over the last couple years. So that's really what the economy has to navigate here is coming from direct transfers on the order of trillions of dollars to individuals to now we're talking about hundreds of billions going forward. Andrew, you're too dovish. Go away. Just going to catch up. Thank you. Andrew Hollenhorst, good to see you. Johnny Gist from City. Central bank decisions aren't the only thing taking place this week. We now have to head to Glasgow, Scotland to catch up with Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix as the COP26 summit kicks off. Good morning, Francine. 
Good morning, John. I'm delighted to, to be here at uh, COP26. We're not sure whether a lot will be agreed given uh, the downpour of negativity, I would say, from a lot of chief executive about what was achieved at G20, which was meant to be the preparatory work for then the 200 countries and their delegates arriving here in Glasgow. But I am delighted to be speaking to Jakob Stausholm, the chief executive officer of Rio Tinto, who's here in Glasgow trying to achieve, uh, well, trying to actually get some of the targets that you laid out. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for giving us, I think, your first interview as chief executive of Rio Tinto with very ambitious plans. You're one of, you know, the, the biggest producers of iron ore that's used in steel making, steel making extremely polluting. What do you now need to achieve to make sure that your goals are stuck to? Yeah, look, um, fighting climate change is a challenge for us. We have a big carbon footprint. Also, it's a huge opportunity for us because fundamentally it's a very physical transition of the society we live in. It's an energy transition. You need more solar cells, uh, wind turbines, uh, transmission lines, electrical vehicles, all requiring the materials that we are producing. But the problem we have right now is we first have to decarbonize our right. chains. Which is expensive Which and is difficult. Very expensive. And we've just laid out plans where we will invest directly seven and a half billion, but initiate much more investments this decade in order to achieve 50% reduction of our carbon footprint by, by, by the end of the decade. It's an ambitious plan, but it's doable. But it's our part in order to also benefit from the growth that comes of from course. the energy yep. transition. So when will we be able to know a lot more about scope three? This is a hard part yep. because it's basically when you give the iron ore to the steel makers, mm -hmm. it's how they decarbonize. So what's the plan there? Well, first of all, the challenge for steel makers is even bigger than it is for us uh, as miners. Uh, but I see them doing a lot. A lot is happening in China right now. We do research and development mm -hmm. with them with uh, Japan and in Europe, etc. It has to be a cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, the major part of the solution is with the steelmaker, but part of it is with us as miners in terms of the quality of product we are delivering, etc., etc. And we are exploring various options. And one of the options that we are exploring is, for example, is that opportunity for the first part of the steel making, the, the, the iron making, the reduction part, yeah. should that be done, green ironing, is that something that we could participate more actively in? So, so we are actually doing an awful lot in that respect. Is China very committed? So we were disappointed by what came out of the G20. So we don't really have an agreement on, you know, for example, domestic coal plants. We don't really have an agreement on this global methane um, summit. So what can we achieve from now? 2050 is very far out. Uh, I think people have to focus a little bit on the short term, what is actually really happening. Yeah. And the reality is China is ahead when it comes to installing renewable energy. Mm -hmm. their, their, their program is incredible ambitious. They are ahead when it comes to penetration of mm -hmm. electrical mm -hmm. vehicles. So we just see a lot going on on the ground in China. Yeah. In terms of timeline, when will you be able to set out your emissions for scope two? Scope 3, we, we have our action plans now, we, yeah. we released that at our capital markets day last week, 
But what we now need to monitor is what will the industry, the steelmakers do. Yeah. And therefore we plan as part of our annual report to yeah. be more numerical about it. But what is important right now is to tell what are we doing. But at the end of the day, Scope yeah. 3, we can never be 100% in control of. Um, when you look at what else we're not in control of is, of course, the energy crisis, it's a freight around the world, and the fact that the economy seems to be stalling once again. Does it make it harder for you to achieve your climate goals because of the difficult environment we see? No, I wouldn't say so. I mean, obviously, we were very lucky at the beginning of the year, and we had our best half year ever in the first half where the economy was growing a lot. Right now, the economy is slowing down, and that probably makes sense because, as you say, we are struggling to move things around in the world, and there's a looming energy crisis, and ultimately, it will have an impact. But I think it's a shorter-term impact. It's a matter of the world to solve its supply chain issues. How How much inflationary pressure are you seeing across your products? Well, for sure, there was a lot of inflation induced in the first half where the world was growing at a high pace. But uh, it, yes, it's one of the challenges. What does that mean? I mean, do you hedge? Do your clients ask for a little bit of time? It must be actually, a, a, you know, a hell of something to deal with. It hasn't been that bad for us. And quite frankly, we have also benefited from, from mm-hmm. part of the inflation comes from higher commodity prices. What does it mean for China? Where are we in China right now? If there, if there continues to be that zero COVID tolerance policy, is it difficult for you to ship things from China? The whole logistics works extremely well. Personally, as a CEO, I'm very sad that I still haven't been able to travel to China, mm-hmm. where my biggest customers are. But uh, it's, it's a difficult world for all of us with COVID. What's your relationship with steelmakers right now? Is there some kind of agreement that you would give them, for example, you know, monetize or to try and help fund some of their efforts to become more green? Ultimately, uh, first of all, we have very good, very long-term relationships with our customers that we have worked with for decades. And, uh, and that's where we tend to in China are very aligned. We always think in a very long-term horizon. And therefore, it's natural for us to form research and development corporations, uh, including we have with Chinese universities, etc. And so, so but, but the problem with R&D is that as a businessman, I like to see results very quickly. But R&D, unfortunately, often takes a little longer. You're pushing me as well. When can you come with a scope three result? But but very often it takes a long time. Let me give you an example. We're trying to decarbonize completely aluminium with our Elysis project. This project has been going on for 20 years. And now it starts really being promising. And we might be able to change a 100-year-old manufacturing uh, um, method. But it just takes time. And therefore, what we need now, the world, in order to achieve 2050, the world needs to put in a lot of seeds of research and development in order to have the breakthroughs necessary. Are you frustrated by the lack of time or by the the speed at which progress is being made? So you're a new chief executive. (laughs) What's the thing that's most frustrating in your job? No, look, I I don't look at it like that because there's so much we can do with existing technology and, and we haven't done enough. And what I said when we were announcing our targets at the capital markets days, we are now starting an internal race because there's much, much more we can do. And we will do. Our thousands of engineers who are used to classical energy solutions now have to think about renewable energy solutions. That's for us to do. But you can't solve 100% of the CO2 without some breakthrough in technology. And there, I think the world will have to be patient because R&D just takes longer. Patience how? So when will we see green steel? Well, but look, the way we look at it, uh, 2030, 
we want to have half our carbon footprint. And I want by 2030 to have a very clear pathway without a lot of uncertainty uh, towards to zero. Thank you so much for joining us. That was the Rio Tinto Chief Executive, Jakob Stausholm. His first interview, actually, as a Chief Executive. With that, John, I'm going to send it back to you in New York. Francine, thank you so much. Looking forward to the week's coverage with you on the ground in Glasgow, Scotland. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.